cancer, for example, if you have cancer of a particular part of your body and it metastasizes to other parts of your body, we're learning that it's not random how cancers metastasize, right? Certain types of cancers infect other organs in a very repeatable pattern, right? And so that is leading to oncologists looking more into the dynamics of how cancer moves through the body. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Stromcast. You know, I don't know, and, and maybe you do, that people realize the impact that math has on everything, even for someone like me who's a communicator, even someone who pays bills, a balance a checkbook, a tip someone, I decide to do an investment. Math is so essential to success. Um, and, and, you, you know, and so I wanted to talk about math in a different kind of way. Um, we're very fortunate that John D. Long with Quake just happened to be in town, and we struck up a conversation about, about math. Uh, you know, Galileo said math is the language of, of the universe. Um, talk about the history of math and, and its evolution, John. Uh, yeah, well, thanks for having me on today. I'm glad that we can meet up, and this is a topic that's kind of near and dear to me. I've always loved mathematics. I've always looked at it as a, a way to understand the world around me, and, and I think the history of mathematics reflects that view. Um, you know, some of the earliest uh, Examples of the application of mathematics or the concepts that became mathematics it emerged around the time of the Babylonians and the Egyptians in roughly 3000 BC. That's where we began to see mathematics used, particularly in the form of measurement and uh, calculation. This is 1900 BC. Yeah, very, very early and used for construction of obviously beautiful works like the pyramids. Also used in astronomy, using the shadows cast by the pyramids to measure the time of day, the position of stars in the sky. Um, and at math's inception, it was all about recognizing patterns to measure things and make calculations and do things. As you move forward in time to the period of the ancient Greeks, mathematics is, for the first time, at least to my understanding, discussed as a concept in and of itself. Right? When the Pythagoreans arrived at the famous Pythagorean theorem, there was a whole intellectual quasi-religious sect of the Pythagoreans that really began to see mathematics not unlike Galileo later in the context of the Christian faith as mathematics is the language of God. But the ancient Greeks saw math as uh, powerful symbols of abstraction, is the emergence of concepts where the word concept was becoming a thing in and of itself. <coughs> and so one really important aspect about the history of mathematics is that it's really the history of, of human thinking and the history of human philosophy and the history of human inquiry into the world around them. And mathematics in particular is the first, or I think one of those powerful instances of humans reflecting on this process of seeing patterns in the world, taking measurements and making calculations and realizing that this practice, these abstractions, these concepts are math. Talk, talk about the abstract and spatial aspect of math. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think uh, a very interesting way to think of mathematics is an ever-increasing series of abstractions, right? And so what does that 
mean? What is an abstraction? An abstraction uh, is an attempt to take a concept that is based upon an observation, say a spatial pattern, right? Let's say uh, someone sees a, a series of rocks on the ground and they see a pattern, they name it, say, oh, that's a square, and then that becomes a concept, and then mathematics treats that notion of a square and makes the idealized form. Something a lot of times students learn in high school is that the definition of a square or a triangle is ideal and that there's no actual physical object that exactly corresponds to that ideal. Abstraction is a means of taking, say, a spatial pattern and pulling out essential details of it, essential concepts of it, and mathematics progresses by further distancing itself from the initial physical inspiration, the physical perception to make ever more increasing abstractions, generalities that then link to other mathematical concepts. It's really the idealistic dance of the human mind. Uh, and, and you know, the, the interesting thing about math, you take someone like Galileo and Einstein um, and others who, even Henry Ford, who had an impact on math in the area of, of lighting, uh, the lighting system uh, here in the United States, uh, where you saw the connection between a place like Niagara Falls and electricity. Mm -hmm. That's all about math. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and moreover, one of the most powerful aspects of math, I mean, you, you're kind of speaking of that time frame from this continuity between Galileo to electricity in Niagara Falls, you're speaking to one of the most powerful aspects of math is that it is the most deepest language of the human species. I mean, the ancient Greek writer Euclid in his famous work, Elements, the, the, the geometric textbook, you know, textbook on geometry, that book is the most the sold textbook in the history of humanity. And why? Well, because A, mathematical concepts are recognizable in any language, right? That's why mathematics has been an incredible international development, right? Once humans began exchanging ideas, going back to the history of mathematics, the ancient Greeks were an incredible period of flourishing. And then mathematics moved to uh, Hindu Indian cultures where it gained a lot of its numerical representation, the representation of numbers and formal decimal systems. Then it shifted back to uh, Arabic cultures where algebra was established. Then in the Renaissance, it shifted back to Europe, and, and, and it's shifted in the 1700s, 1800s to Europe and also into China. So it's this incredible human dialogue because there's a sense in which the formal symbols of mathematics and the underlying concepts are identifiable in a way to the mathematically inclined mind that language uh, hasn't even uh, transferred as far across the world. What needs to happen early on in anyone's life? give you the best opportunity of conquering and mastering mathematics? That's a really, um, that's a really tough one, actually, because a lot of people, a lot of educators ask themselves that question all the time and try to bring it into practice. Um, I'd say at first glance, the thing that always strikes me about people who are not interested in mathematics is it seems like they either had a very accounting based introduction to math. I remember at my high school I had some really great teachers, but there were also some other teachers who I spoke with that 
would say things like, well, we don't want to teach advanced or very abstract mathematical concepts because at the end of the day, we want these kids to come out of high school being able to balance their checkbook, being able to you know, pay their rent, being able to keep track of finances. So a lot of the way that <coughs> math is taught, uh, and I'll go out on a limb on this, it's, it's taught in a way that is well-intentioned. It's, it's intended to be a practical thing for kids. Um, but unfortunately, in going too practical and not going into the abstraction, not going into the history, not trying to make that deeper connection to mathematics as it relates to our sense of reality, I think it loses the mystery and the, and the sexiness of mathematics. And kids, like teenage kids in particular, that's a really powerful drive, right? Kids get inspired by things that seem powerful or mysterious or in engaging. Right? And I think a lot of times math isn't taught that way. You know, I think sometimes the best example for people to make these conversations as relatable is to tell your own story, your being able to embrace math in a phenomenal way, some of the things that you've been able to do in the marketplace and things that you continue to do because you decided to make uh, math your footstool. Hmm. Yeah, um, well, I mean, for me, I got very much inspired in mathematics early on. I had a mathematics uh, teacher in high school named Mr. Zastopol, who I had for three out of four years in, in high school because I really loved his approach. Um, if anybody's ever heard of the old uh, Nova TV series, um, they were great because they would introduce math as in reality, right? It would take, uh, it was early, it was like this is the 90s, so early computer graphics, and they'd show various plants or the way tree branches grow or the way water flows through a desert and relate it back to mathematical concepts of flow and Fibonacci series and golden ratio and then show how it's in art so link it up to history. And, uh, and that's how Mr. Uh, Zastopol taught that plus uh, a notion of excellence. You know, every day you walk into class and there was a proof. And if you could solve it, you got extra points for that day. And he made us work really hard. So I learned, uh, about reality, I learned uh, about nature and history, I learned about uh, discipline and focus, and then as I went on into my neuroscience work, um, as I pivoted from pure biological work to more computer vision robotics work, um, I again got very inspired back into mathematics because I began to think about how to translate ideas about cognition and perception into mathematical concepts that then could be implemented in algorithms. So that really kind of completed the loop for me because I was able to get a biological education, dig really into nature through my neuroscience degree, and then go back into understanding because the, the, the food of math is phenomena. Right? Math takes our observations about nature and things happening in the world and and abstracts them and forms them into concepts. So I dug into biology, learned about nature, and then have been going back and trying to take the insights from that and to make mathematical models of vision, of action, of planning, of memory. So that's kind of my arc. So where were you challenged along the way where you had, you were stuck, but yet you found a way to overcome and, and meet the challenge head on? <laughs> it was usually, you know, you get a problem set of like 50 problems that get progressively harder, and it was a lot of times like problem 49 and problem 50. I mean, I remember uh, a lot of times in uh, my math education in high school and in college as well, uh, 
you know, you're sailing along, this is easy, 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 and then you hit that problem and your brain goes, you're stuck, you can't figure it out right away. And it just takes time and learning to dig in and then and feeling dumb, you know, feeling as though, oh, I can't get that, so therefore I'm stupid. And learning how to work through that, through a mixture of pride and perseverance. Um, so that was a lot of it there. And then I could go, I don't, we could go on and on about getting a PhD in research science. I mean, that's a, a humbling uh, process of, uh, you know, on the afterwards, it's described in terms of creativity and insight, but all too often it's a process of beating your head against a wall till either your head gives or the wall does. Um, talk about the importance of math and in the advancement of medicine and finding cures. Oh, well, I think there it's important to make a connection between mathematics and the history of mathematics and the history of science and the history of what we all know as the scientific method, right? Because they work in, in, in kind of parallel streams to each other because on the one hand, as I said earlier, mathematics is an attempt to take observations about phenomena of nature, phenomena in the world, and formulate them as concepts and then progressively abstract the original observations away to find some kind of ideal essence. Well, there's a part of that that's very critical to the development of science because science fundamentally hinges upon a similar insight, which is the belief that there is some sort of pattern, there is some sort of order out there in the world. If there was, people didn't believe that, there would be no science. There would be no curing diseases because there'd be no disease. There'd just be all these random things happening to people, right? The fact that we have a word disease, the fact that we have a word for a cure, that means that these are things that can be distilled down from the desperate observations of reality, right? So science starts with a model. It starts with a concept, okay? We can explain all these things that are causing people to die as a disease, right? And then once we have that initial model, and this is where science diverts a little bit from math, Whereas math goes on to abstract and abstract away, science then goes, okay, can I collect data that conforms to this model of disease, right? Does my current model of disease, as it relates to these people who are sick, if I collect this data, does my model make sense? Because if it does, then a cure is essentially, you can imagine, a progressive increasing expansion of our model where things keep making sense to eventually a cure is the making sense of a disease, right? And so, Science is the process of starting with the model and refining the model through further collecting of data. But I think that initial point where math and science connect is in that recognizing a pattern and forming a concept and a belief in a conceptual development. But math continues to abstract away from the details and science endeavors to bring in more observations to further the model, to do things with that model. You know, math is essential to the advancement of technology, but it seems like technology is way behind in catching up to the math. Well, I think that goes back to the, uh, the nature of, of abstraction. I mean, I personally really enjoy, I mean, I'll be, I'll be <coughs> honest with you, I know, uh, I'm more of a math enthusiast. I wouldn't call myself a pure mathematician. I, I'd like to think I can. What's the difference? Um, well, I, the, to your point, um, I consider myself uh, an applied mathematician or somebody very much interested in math and statistics as it relates to uh, applications and science. And the difference is, um, like I was mentioning a moment ago about that point where 
math continues to abstract away from nature and reality, um, or at least non-idealized reality, and science kind of at a certain point turns back and digs back into to nature, um, I operate on that point. I definitely dig back in, I try to find applications, I try to check in on where math is right now. A lot of times studying the brilliant work of minds, you know, far greater than mine in terms of math. I like to think I'm well trained enough to where I can appreciate what's happening in modern math, but the idea of contributing to it is daunting. But um, anyway, to your point though, technology is always going to be behind math because math is going off into the idealized stars and at a certain point doesn't care if it links back into technology. But then mathematically inclined technologies study it as they're digging into problems that they're trying to solve in the real world and math always is a repository, a reservoir of inspiration. It is. Math is supposed to always be ahead of technology. So let me, let me give you, uh, see how you respond to this. Math is never in conflict with nature, but it's always in chaos with man. <laughs> I, I like how that sounds. I'm going to have to think about that for a second. Uh, well, what makes you think that math is always in chaos with man? What, what, do, you, what do you mean by that last point? Because man feels that they should be much further along in mastering math. And math humbles them because they can spend hours and years in the research, and as close as they get, they're as far away as they've ever been. Oh, I get the phenomenon you're speaking to. This is not just a problem that mathematics finds, but in technology and in our modern society in general. You know, I think that it's the what have you done for me lately kind of mentality. It's like as much as math and, and, and science and technology have brought so many wonders at ever-increasing rates, when you look at the history of innovation and technology development by any uh, measure of outcome in terms of everything from infant mortality to uh, travel speeds to uh, or migration patterns to communication, things are developing faster than they ever have in human history. But we always want more. We always want it to go faster. Is math pure? Uh, well, if insofar as you think of uh, your the word pure links up with words such as essence, abstraction, well, and ideal. Just, me, yeah. yeah. Well, let me just go further. What happens when man pollutes math for its own diabolical agenda? Well, that's the that's the classic problem of you know, uh, you know, I have a hammer and I can choose to build a house by knocking in nails, or I can choose to, you know, hurt people by knocking heads. Right? I mean, that's that's not, in my opinion, math's problem. That's that's people problem. What, what, what do you think would surprise most people in your experiences about math? Uh, I think, um, well, it's the thing I tell uh, young people, you know, my nephews and nieces, I'm the youngest of four, so I have several nephews and nieces or little kids, you know, when they ask, because they do at a certain age, you know, kids go to school and they learn about these subjects, and they're like, I've had, you know, family members, little kids ask me, well, what is math? And the thing I always say to them is, is well, math is power, right? And 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 it, it kind of, oh, power. Oh, what do you mean? Was power was in this context? Well, it's a way to to understand or to look at your world. That if you put some time in and discipline yourself, a lot thing more things make sense to you. The world just hasn't. Not that the world is ordered, but mathematics supplies you with a way to see the world as ordered. 
that gives you a perspective that allows you, I don't know, I think it provides a certain common insight that I find different ways of looking at the world uh, uh, not always lack, but it, it definitely complements other worldviews. How much has math evolved from the days of the Great Pyramids to the architectural wonders that we have in the world today? Oh, immensely. I mean, uh, when you consider that the early, you know, for example, uh, in Euclid's elements, the early uh, geometers, there's no numerical representation, right? It's all just measurement and angle and contour. And, uh, you know, I remember doing the old school geometric constructions, you know, tools as a mathematician were uh, a ruler and a compass, and, and that was it. Um, and when you consider that now we have uh, advanced symbolic logic systems, I mean, the real jumping off point was when the integral calculus was established by Sir Isaac Newton and Godfrey Leibniz uh, in the 17th century. I mean, that's when we were off to the races. Then we had Euler in the 18th century, we had C.I.F. Gauss in the 19th century, and then from then, we were, you know, concurrent with the emergence of physics. I mean, that's when an acceleration happened where math emerged with the, you know, matured with the emergence of modern science, that then translated into technology. And these are all math and science and technology. They're so interwoven together now in the complexity of the systems we've been able to build. I would say that's one of the major, major elements of mathematics is the abstractions have gone so deep and so abstract while at the same time their manifestations in technology have a complexity that is just incredible. Why do you think um we're not further along in the math of diseases like cancer and dementia and Alzheimer's. What do you think the whole back? What is it that we're not understanding? And what is it that's complex? Yeah, I mean, um, interesting to pose it as a mathematics problem. Um, I think for one, as someone, I mean, I did experimental neuroscience for many, many years. And, you know, the problem that I ran up against a lot, and I think all scientists run up against, is a lot of times your data is not very good, right? It's uh, and who's to blame for that? There's not blame. It's just a matter of uh, so the quality of your data is a function of the technology you have at the moment and your understanding of the phenomena that you're collecting data from. Is it because you're underfunded? Well, funding definitely uh, helps. Um, but these problems are really hard, too, right? I mean, so for example, um, we're learning more and more cancer, for example. If you have cancer of a particular part of your body and it metastasizes to other parts of your body, we're learning that it's not random how cancers metastasize, right? Certain types of cancers infect other organs in a very repeatable pattern, right? And so that is leading to oncologists looking more into the dynamics of how cancer moves through the body. But just because you made that observation about how the disease works, and that's what you have to chase. You've got to chase the disease, expand your model to work towards a cure. Because, again, there's a sense in which a cure is kind of a completing the model of the disease. And, but then that requires chasing that phenomenon. It's like, oh, do we even have the technology to make these observations we might need to cure this disease? So then you got to iterate technology. And the first iterations of it are terrible. They're not very good. And this is the continuing problem. Biology is very, very difficult. Because unlike, say, uh, in silica technology, where we can create the systems out of materials we understand and then analyze them, 
biology, the wet stuff of the cellular composition of you and me is very difficult to work with. What about the, which I think is a very polluted argument, that math doesn't always favor the poor, the minorities, if you look at Simi Valley, if you look at NIH, um, you just look at some of these big research centers, you just don't find them, that, that they're representative. Um, why, what would you attribute that to? Yeah, that's, um, I mean, I remember in my uh, neuroscience institute, while I think it's always endeavoring to get better, you know, there were a lot of us that were concerned about, you know, just asking the question, like, where is the representation of other community members in the U.S. in this, uh, in this establishment? Because you get up to the high levels of academia, and there's still not enough women and people of color and, you know, that are there. And I think uh, going back to my point about why a lot of people don't like mathematics, I think a lot of well-intended teachers, because they're tight funding and they're, you know, if you have a lot of poor kids, I, I, I think what happens is math becomes about teaching them basic skills of finance and survival. And that doesn't tend to lead towards kids getting interested in abstraction and going to the high levels of math, right? There's a sense in which I think a lot of times the education of the poor, while well-intended, actually limits their, their growth because for, I think, good intention, they focus upon practical skills, like get these people jobs, let's get them out of abject poverty into maybe a working class, middle class position. Um, but sometimes they, that can be done in a way that limits their ability to go even beyond that. Does that make, does that make sense? But what about the discipline and the research and the time that is necessary, when you look at your own life, how much your time was invested in being who you are today? Basically, in many ways, you didn't have a life. I was remember, remember talking to you about when you're trying to solve a problem or an issue, sometimes you find your secret place, and you would disappear for three or four days just yeah. to figure it out. Yeah. Um, this requires a lot of discipline. Yeah. And a hunger, a deep hunger. Yeah. To find answers. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know what to say on that. I mean, I've always, you'd have to ask my mom and my dad. I was always kind of like that. You know, and I'm, you know, I'm a... Did, which, did you have an example like that growing up? Um, sort of. I mean, uh, so I'm a, you know, one of four. Um, my other siblings are not necessarily like that. But my dad was always somebody kind of a tinkerer. I, I just think the random combination of DNA that is your parents coming together I got my father's kind of, he enjoys tinkering, and my mom likes to think about, you know, problems, and I got kind of both of those things together. It ended up being a kid who hung out in his room and built crazy Lego well, projects. They knew you were special, and they yeah. developed that. They fed it. Yeah, my, yeah, yeah. And that's important. Sure. You've got to recognize Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah, my parents definitely supported my uh, uh, strange behaviors. Is it strange behavior? Uh, it's the kind of behavior that is necessary if you want to make a difference in taking math to another space that where it has not been before? I think it depends on how your mind works and, and whether you accept that or not. I know some people in mathematics that are, do really great work and they don't have to operate that way. They're kind of very on their feet and very quick. Um, I realize that you know, I do my best work when I accept that I need to like go off in a room with no windows. And, and, uh, and I learn to discipline myself to do that because I, uh, I, I enjoy the outcome of it. Wow. 
But listen, I can't thank you enough. How do we find out more information about you, Dr. Long? Yeah, well, um, I, thank you. I'm uh, the CTO at uh, Quake Technologies, so you can look us up at qwakete.tech, uh, T-E-C-H. And uh, otherwise, you know, reach out through contacts and we'll be out there. You know, I, I really think it's conversations like this when young people and older people listen to this conversation. I think they will be so fascinated. The conversation is so gripping. And Dr. Long explains it in a way where anybody can understand. I make you want to engage. I make you feel like you're missing out on something. You want to be a part of those people who have these special gifts with math to just, to just figure out these equations. And so um, thank you so much for joining us for this edition of Strong Cats. Our guest, Dr. John D. Long. I'm Armstrong Williams. Thank <laughs> you.